Yeah, I'll pray and we'll just hop right back into it. Heavenly Father, you are holy, you are just and righteous in all of your ways. Lord, we ask that you would go before us, cleanse our hearts, forgive us of our sins this morning as we start this day. Um, may, as we gather with your saints, may we have pure hearts to worship you and glorify you, Lord. Teach us and guide us through your word so that we can praise you in all that we do. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so, recapping from last week. Uh, this is actually going to be a recap and in finishing what we started last week. So I actually got about halfway through my notes, if you can believe it, uh, last week. So I, I believe it. <laughs> way, way over estimated, which is hilarious because I've been trying to be more and more concise as time goes on, and it just seems like it's the opposite effect. Um, so we talked largely about the um, nature of the covenant. The nature of the covenant being not one of blind, dispassionate loyalty, or, or not loyalty, but obedience, um, that the law wasn't given simply for the sake of adhering to the law. The law of God was given so that they could love God and obey God and please God and honor God. And we see that from the outpouring of the Trinitarian relationship, the interpersonal uh, relationship within the Trinity, that the Son isn't just being obedient to the Father simply for the sake of obedience. He's, he's being obedient for the glory of the Father. And same with the Father is uh, loving the Son for the glory of the Son. He's not doing it for the sake of doing it, right? So, in that regard, uh, we learned from Deuteronomy 6, and this is actually echoed later in um, one of the Gospels. Uh, I think several of the Gospels mention this, right? When Christ is talking about uh, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that is, a, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 5, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. So Christ is saying the whole law is encapsulated in that command. So we can extrapolate from that, that the center of the law the reason why the Israelites should have upheld the law is because they loved the Lord. They had fidelity and loyalty and affection for Yahweh. They weren't simply obeying Yahweh uh, in the sense of we talked about that contractual deal, right? Well, it's beneficial for us to serve Yahweh, and God gets something out of it too, so that contract, as long as we maintain that relationship, that contractual relationship, then we're both benefiting. It doesn't work that way. This is a covenant relationship. What do you mean it doesn't work that way? It does work that way. You can both you you can keep God's law not because you love God, but because it benefits you to be right. So this is where so this it is does, where it does benefit. It's a good you. clarification. So this is where there's, uh, and I'm going to talk about this sort of as we go. There's a there's a there's a close distinction between. Um, what we can observe with our senses, essentially. So there's what you can observe that's happening versus what's actually, <clears throat> excuse me, what's actually happening in a spiritual sense. So 
Someone can, this is the old question, can, can people who are apart from Christ do good, right? And we'd say, well, of course they can do good things in the sense that there's an appearance of good, right? It, from our observation, it looks like they can be loving, honoring, you know, care for the poor, on and on. Whatever good things we want to fill in the blank there, right? So that's where observationally, externally, we'd say, yeah, they're, they're doing good things. And agreed. Externally, we can uphold the law of God. We can, ha- we can remain faithful in our marriage. We can raise our children even to, to fear God. We can do those things that are externally and observationally. Those are the right things to do. But simultaneously, in doing that, we ourselves, our hearts, the person who's doing those things, can actually be separate from God. So this is where Mike has talked about there are people who are in the church... Is there any reason to... If if you are separate from God and, you know, keeping his laws and obeying and doing your best, then is there a reason to... Any reason to obey? Sometimes I feel like, okay, this is personal. Uh I do what I... Something that's right because it's right to do it, not because I feel like, gee, I love God and right. I want to honor Him. It's more, I need to do what's right here. Yeah, and that, my, my heart maybe be far from yes. God. And there is a there is a line of thought. There is a line of thought um, that our obedience to Christ is like a uh, a train in the sense that our our desire, our emotion, or our feeling of love, that is, I'm doing this to glorify God, is the back of the train. Now, it's connected to the front of the train, obviously. There's no slack. It's, it's connected. But the idea is that our, our obedience in the first place is the front of the train. And so, if you just act in obedience, eventually you will grow in fidelity, or not fidelity, you will grow in affection for God. And I would say, Lord, for you, you are, uh, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that's causing you to act that way. So you're saying, some, and this is where you don't have to explicitly have a verse and passage or a, an explicit, I'm going to do this because it glorifies God, sort of internal dialogue. Every single time that you do something, that is glorifying God. This is where, as Christians, the work of the Holy Spirit works from the inside outward to our fingertips so that we eventually will grow to the point where it does start becoming, not necessarily uh, second nature, but it does start becoming a little bit more automatic. And I think maybe that's what you're referring to, that you'll, it's like, okay, I know I'm supposed to do this or I know I'm supposed to abstain from doing this sort of thing or some activity or or saying something to someone. Um, the reason you're doing that is because you have a foundation of biblical understanding. Now, you, as someone who, someone who is in that position, okay, um, there are Christians who can fake it. And that's basically what we're guarding against. We're guarding against faking it. We're guarding against making it look like I've got all my ducks in a row, making it look like I'm serving God. But actually, internally, and the antithesis of it is that we actually hate God. We actually resent Him. So it's not so much that we're outwardly and what is observable looks like uh, a good Christian life, right? And then the internal is kind of just indifferent. It actually becomes the opposite where 
Externally, you're keeping up appearances because of the life you've set up and because of friends and family and, and uh, connections and things like that. And for the sake of not disrupting that, that thing you have uh, constructed, um, you'll keep up appearances. But internally, you may actually resent God. You may actually hate God. And so that's what we're, we're guarding against. Um, and that's particularly why we are commanded to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which, if we think about it, heart, mind, okay, strength. What is strength? That is our activity. That is our actions. So it's encompassing the whole, the whole spectrum. All right, so moving on. Um, regarding the sufficiency of Christ's atonement and not uh, it and not a mere condition that we have to add other things to. So we looked at the atonement of Christ as, in other words, Christ's work on the cross and his uh, obedience to the Father, that satisfied the wrath of God. It satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. Therefore, if that is applied to you, you have salvation. You are brought into the covenant. That's sufficiency. If we say it's conditional, then we'd say, well, Christ... That has to be there. And then there are other conditions that have to come along with that in order to lead to or equal the, um, the uh, answer of salvation, if you want to look at it that way. So, one thing I didn't talk about, which I think is really important, is in connection with the sufficiency of Christ, the covenant that we have in Christ is a concept called federal headship. Now, has everyone heard that term? Federal headship? It's mostly not. Okay, good. Well, federal headship is the idea that we have a federal head over us as humans. Now, we uh, instantly kind of cringe away from this type of notion in our American context, and I'm going to elaborate on that in a second. But we have to understand as Christians, well, not, 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 not first as Christians, as created creatures, under Adam, we have our first head, which is Adam. So Adam is the father of all creation. His sin, his failure, is then transmitted to us. So under Adam, as Adam being our federal head, our first federal head, we then inherit his sinful nature. So we are sinful and we sin, because we are sons of Adam, the first Adam. So in that sense, our first, so you have the first Adam, led to death, right? This is what um, Romans chapter 5, if, you're, if you want to know exactly where this is all elaborated, is Romans chapter 5, and I was thinking about incorporating it, but it's really like 5 and 6. It's a little... <laughs> led to death. And then, of course, the... Uh, so, at, mankind is, is under the curse of Adam, that is, we sin. We're apart from God. And we can't solve this dilemma. We can't fix this ourselves. That goes back to the sufficiency of Christ, His atonement. If we could, if we could fix our sinful nature by ourselves then Christ's atonement isn't necessary. This is why we would have been able to keep the law, 
we would have been able to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law. Clearly, we are not. God knows this. This is why in his sovereign plan, he sends Christ to atone for the debt that we owed, and then Christ, through that, becomes the second Adam. So you may have heard that phrase, second Adam. I was actually on a radio show for a long time that that was the name of our show, was Second Adam. And people would be like, what in the world does that mean, right? Um, and so we would explain to them this notion of federal headship and how we were under Adam, but now we're under Christ. And so we're set free from the curse of Adam in the sense of our uh, proclivity to sin, or not proclivity, our depravity to sin. Whereas still, and this is what I, I preached on uh, a couple times ago, about how... Um, even though we're set free from Adam and the curse of sin, we still actually suffer under the curse of the fall in the sense that our bodies decay and get old. And uh, eventually we will experience re resurrection just as Christ was resurrected. Yeah. I'm sorry, you're, I'm the reason you don't get through your lesson. <laughs> um, in what sense is It'll the just be a 22 class federal? Course. Federal? Yes, why do we call it federal headship? Well, we call uh, it fe headship. Yeah, so headship, this is where it, the main distinction is you have federal headship. Federal is encompassing a, a more universal sense versus just individual headship. I am operating in headship over Julia and my children, but I don't operate federal headship over all of creation. And now I might operate some type of federal headship, maybe a lesser type of federal headship, or so broader just, universal headship. We're just using that term to mean universal. We're using that term to mean all-encompassing, right? It has more legal ramifications. It has a lot more to unpack um, that we don't have time to do. But um, yes, I'm giving these terms. So if you want to look up, study these things, that's the term to go for. Search federal headship, and you can read um, books. I think John Frame has some interesting stuff to say about it. And most theologians and, and uh, commentators will touch on this notion of federal religion. Well, doesn't federal also mean like covenant, covenantal? Yes. Okay, because okay. yeah. I think that's so, a governmental term. Yeah. We, we have a federal government. Right. And that's where, yes, the, the, the notion of federal encompasses those uh, law-giving senses and that sense of government structure and covenant. So we could be called as Americans, we would think of the Constitution as a type of covenant. And, and obviously, yeah. it's a covenant between the citizens and the government, right? And it's how that relationship takes place. So we call it the federal government because that is the government that's over the entirety of the states. So it's sort of the top, the top tier. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to give a super, like, Pointed theological definition of federal headship. Other theologians Sorry to have done that. No, it's okay. It's okay. But that, that does help us with the understanding of just basic headship. So you have federal headship, Adam and then Christ. Those are the two federal heads that are uh, presented in Scripture. Then obviously we have just basic headship in Scripture that is given to us several times, and that is at a. Uh, um, Adam over you know, Eve in the garden, and then you have uh, Abraham over his descendants, uh, the kings of Israel over Israel and Jerusalem and, and those kind of things. So there's 
federal headship, and then there's lower forms of headship. Now, we, as I mentioned, in America, we immediately kind of back away from this idea. And that's because of Amer the American experience of existentialism. So is everyone familiar with the term existentialism? We're getting a few nuts. Okay, so existentialism is essentially a philosophical standpoint that I think was originated, I believe it was Kant who started with existentialism. Um, so in like the, Kant was like the mid 18th century, I believe. I'm a little rusty on that stuff. But um, the idea of existentialism is that we are our own individual free agents. So existentialism says we are our own individual free agents. That is, we are individual, we're separate from any sort of group or collective bond or collective responsibility. Does that make sense? Now, that that does sound... Oh, that's right. It's an I. Yeah, that we are our own individual free agent to act and behave and do things. And now our government, our, the U.S. Constitution, was built very much on a notion of individual personal liberty, which is coming from an existentialist kind of philosophy, which in government works very well. This is why we don't... Uh, um, and we don't follow some of the uh, laws of the Old Testament, where if the father commits a sin, which is, we, we can read, I think, Leviticus, right? The story of Achan. Achan sins, and what happens? It wipes out his whole family. And that's like probably hundreds of people, because he was a, like a, a leader within Israel. So that is a headship model versus an existentialist model. The existentialist would say, no, you just put, he's guilty, he alone is guilty, he was working as an individual agent, and even though he might be over these people in a fatherly, patriarchal sense, we only put him to death for his crimes. That is an existentialist way of thinking about justice and crime and things like that. So, for us, we're raised in that system. We're raised to believe that we're individuals. Uh, my actions may or may not necessarily affect other people and things like that. Well, we learned from Scripture that actually what is taking place from God's perspective is there is still a, uh, a mechanism of headship. So I am not, to, to use my family again, I am not merely an individual agent who just happens to be in a leadership role in my family. Um, in my individual family. And therefore, what I do doesn't necessarily affect them. No, I have headship over Julia and my children. So that means the actions that I do and the things that I do directly affect them, even if it doesn't necessarily appear that that's the case. So this is that, that whole thing of... Um, what you can observe from the outside versus what's actually happening from a spiritual sense. It's also why when you sin, your sin, in fact, it, it affects the entire body. Even mine, I'm not really ahead of much. Right. And Margaret, maybe. Right. But my sin affects yes. all of Christendom. Yep. 
And that's, that's exactly what we're saying here, is that under this model, which is the model that's given to us in Scripture, that Mike has talked about sphere sovereignty. Well, sphere sovereignty is encapsulated with that notion of federal headship and headship. And the idea is that we are much more connected than we are brought up to be, uh, brought up to believe in our immediate context. So this is where, from a just a, a understanding the Bible and hermeneutics and interpretation and, and translation and all of that, we have to not only be aware that there's an original context that we have to work through and try to understand the best we can, but we also actually have to do some work to try to understand our own context. And this is where I think a lot of uh, biblical understanding goes awry because they might interpret scripture very well in understanding its original context, but then they, they miss, ironically, somehow, they miss their actual own immediate context. And I believe we saw this during COVID when people were quoting you know, Romans 13 and we should obey the government and, and, and do these types of things. And I was like, you know, Romans 13 certainly says that. But your error, your error isn't interpreting its original context. Your error is understanding your own context. You don't have a Caesar. You don't have a king. You have a written document. So this is where people, I believe most Christians, were miss, the, where they went awry was at the very end of understanding their own context. They were actually misunderstanding the government that they were actually under. And so they were, because of that, then they were misapplying it. So, this is where we want to be very careful in clarifying and understanding what is happening uh, in Scripture versus what we are raised in and experience and might have the proclivity to, to lean towards. But we want to understand that, all right, there is federal headship, there is headship. What does that mean? How do I... How does that affect my life? How do I operate within the church, within the family, within Christendom as a whole, as a result of, of headship? Um, and that allows us to then be, begin to understand that, yeah, my actions don't just affect me. So if I'm caught in sin, if I have some sort of secret sin um, that I'm refusing to repent of, uh, it is actually affecting my family and then subsequently the church. Now, it may not appear that way, but this is where, again, appearances and observations aren't the best thing to use for the barometer of what is actually happening in a spiritual sense. Because if we just go off of our emotions and based off of what externally things look like, then we can get fooled into right away thinking, oh, I'm, I'm good to go. But look what God has blessed me with. Clearly, He loves me. He's so pleased with how I act all the time. Because look what I have. And it's like, you know, your mere, your mere outward appearance isn't a very good barometer for what, uh, for where your heart is. So, okay. So moving on. Um, so how is, we're going to transition back to the note uh, last week. So that is a, a sort of a, a better primer for the notion of our covenant with Christ, because now he is our federal head. So the question is, how is a covenant established? How is a covenant established in Scripture? Well, throughout the Bible, covenants are established by oaths. So covenants 
by oaths. Now, an oath isn't merely just, I solemnly swear to do such and such and such. The idea here is that an oath is incorporating a physical sign. Or rather that the physical sign, the outward sign, is the oath. It's the sign of the oath. So, the oath-taking ceremony involved a physical sign. The sign of the Old Testament, which is actually of the Abrahamic covenant, is the sign of circumcision. So, Abraham was instructed by God to circumcise himself and then all the males within his household. And the reason for that is because that was the sign, the seal, the proof, if you will, that they were, in fact, in covenant with God. So we'll read that now uh, about that in Genesis 17, verses 9 through 13. And there's some interesting elements here if we keep in mind that notion of headship, that notion, that notion of federal headship, that these are not, indiv- Adam wasn't, Abraham wasn't his own individual free agent, but that the covenant he entered actually uh, then just automatically goes to those who are under him. Okay. So Genesis 17, verses 9 through 13. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between you, excuse me, me and you, and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So we have here not only our eight-day-olds being uh, given the sign of the covenant. Now, obviously, we might say, if we're taking an existentialist idea, well, wait a minute. You might be, might be hearing the uh, argument against credo-baptism here. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, children aren't old enough to follow the law, or an eighth-day-old isn't old enough to give an oath to follow the law of God, to follow the Levitical law, how then can they be brought into the covenant? Well, that they can be brought into the covenant because of who their father is. And in this sense, their father is Abraham. So the very notion that they are a physical descendant of Abraham means they are brought into the covenant. They do not have a choice. And at that time, this was understood. The people, the men that were under Abraham, and he certainly had grown men. He had men that were probably close to his same age who were his servants or bond servants or some type of relationship, workers or whatever um, they called it back then. Um, Those individuals were under the authority of Abraham. They were under the head of Abraham. And so they were required to receive the same covenant, that, to, to enter into the same covenant that he entered into. So to us, that seems like a little strange that, wait a minute, if, like, if Mike decided to 
believe something somehow that would impact all of us and we're all expected to then go along with that, we would go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like he, he's his own person. He can believe whatever he wants to believe, but we're going to go this way, right? So that's that pushback. We're taught to think in that rugged individualist kind of idea. Whereas in, in Abraham's time, that notion was uh, 3,000 years away <laughs> from, from being uh, conceptualized. So, uh, yeah, Adam's covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam is explicitly transferred then to anyone and everyone who is under Adam. And the reason why God chose Adam wasn't because, or Abraham, because Abraham was just amazing and just some sort of uh, upstanding moral character. Um, he chose him out of grace and love, and he chose him to make him a nation. So here's why God chose Abraham and to give him this covenant, this promise. I have chosen him, this is, sorry, this is Genesis 18, verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. So he has uh, made a covenant with Abraham because Abraham will, and so that Abraham will uh, command his children and his household after him to obey the Lord, to follow the Lord, by, by, to do righteous accord, righteousness according to God and to execute justice. Now, the reason for that is that Abraham and his descendants were then to not just keep that within themselves, but to essentially go evangelize the world. They were to be God's uh, envoys, God's ambassadors to the world. That was Israel's call. And that's one of the reasons that we see throughout the Old Testament as it progresses. They fail at doing that. They're not upholding the promises that they were required to do under the Abrahamic covenant. Hence uh, the advent of Christ. Okay. So that is Abraham's oath. Uh, that he would teach his children to keep and honor the ways of the Lord uh, and then subsequently teach and lead the nations to do the same thing, to fear the Lord. So, that obviously brings up, we need to unpack the term oath a little bit more and what exactly is happening when we uh, make an oath. So a covenant is established by an oath, but what is an oath? Well, an oath particularly is what is defined as a self-maledictory promise. Does anyone want to guess what that means? A self-maledictory promise. Yeah, if you break it, you're bringing some form of badness upon yourself. Very good. You're swearing by your own hurt, in essence. And this is precisely what, I mean, God does. God, God has no one greater to swear by, so he swears by himself. Well, God is obviously perfect and loyal and just, so he's never broken a covenant. And in that sense, so, I don't want to say it, I won't say that. Uh, it's not that it's not easy for God to not break a covenant, but it's not in his nature. He is not one that breaks covenants. We break covenants. So when we enter into a covenant with God, we are making that promise, we are taking the oath, and we are saying, if I don't uphold this, I need some more water, my love, I'm sorry. Or Grandpa, can you do it? She's holding the baby. It's okay. I don't know what it is about these rooms, but it was a couple years ago I was in 
teaching in, I think, one of the other ones. And there was some mold, and it, like, my throat just was like, whoop. <laughs> you call Here. it as mold? Huh? Yeah, you, you call it as mold? Moldy, some of you. Probably water damage. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so self-maledictory promises. Essentially, you're promising to your own hurt. Um, so when we make a promise and preserve and promise to uphold the covenant relationship, we take the seal and that oath. It implies a curse on us if we fail to uphold that covenant. So we actually experience this uh, in this church when we baptize our children. Mike goes through the the list of things that you are. Uh, swearing before the congregation before God to do when you raise that child and then he says if you don't do these things if essentially this child grows to reject this baptism it will actually be a curse to them and we read elsewhere in scripture that for example uh, men who enter into the role of teaching and instructing are judged more harshly the whole notion of even as an adult if you convert and are baptized and then later on reject your baptism so you know this is where how god actually works this out in actual an actual sense is kind of interesting and strange to me but that somehow the person who is unregenerate and doesn't know christ is actually somehow in a better position than the yes. person who entered into covenant and then rejected it yeah it's like well what does that actually mean well, that's for God to determine. I don't know that, that, you know, the specific spiritual details that are actually occurring there. And so, well, what could be worse than being apart from the covenant? Well, apparently there's degrees yeah. of being separated from the covenant. And it's worse to enter it and then reject it. Because you've taken that self-maledictory promise. And we've all done this. Or, like, not, well, not everyone who's ever been born has done this but most people will do this at least once in their life when they are married so the traditional wedding vow starts usually or, or some portion in it says to death do us part or till death do us part that means until death the covenant of marriage is in place and interestingly death is actually the proper end of a marriage covenant so this was something that I was like, oh, wow, okay. Marriage covenant, every marriage covenant that's entered into in history actually does have a designated end. It's a, it's a covenant that's designed to be broken. And the proper breaking point of the covenant of marriage is death. Now, obviously, it can be broken other ways through adultery. But adultery being not the proper breaking point of the covenant of marriage what happens then is the person who commits adultery and prematurely breaks the covenant or inappropriately breaks the covenant of marriage actually then incurs upon themselves this, if, they, if in their vows they say, till death do us part, uh, implying that death is the proper break of the covenant. If they breach it themselves, if they break it themselves, they are actually incurring that curse upon them. Now that doesn't mean, obviously, observationally, People who commit adultery and break their marriage covenant don't just drop over and die. That would be handy. That would be very, <laughs> you know, that would be a great that would be a great um, like deterrent. 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 Yes, <laughs> that'd be a huge deterrent if it was that simple, right? So we we sometimes we kind of wish that God 
operated in, in some of those ways where someone blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they were just like, you know, hit the floor. Be like, okay. Do you think this is why communion's fallen out of favor in churches and only get, happens maybe twice a year because then the elders aren't forced to deal with sin in their congregation? Because haven't the elders also taken a covenant? Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I think partially. Because um, I feel like churches treat baptism as a really big deal and then communion kind of... Lives yeah, well, it is interesting how it, that, I think, has more to do with... Um, yeah, I think that has more to do with that idea of existentialism creeping oh. into the church. Mm-hmm. And that baptism, by and large, is a very seen as a very individual, personal decision. Where communion, it's almost impossible to think of communion in that same sense of this is a purely individual, personal experience. Now, you'll go to churches where they will phrase it that way. Like, this is between you and God, and, and it, you know, you that sort of language. But in Scripture, it's very clear that communion is done when the body is together, when the congregation is together. So I think that's what's happening. That's why there's a uh, overemphasis, not, well, there's an emphasis only on baptism, and communion just becomes this Well, if you're in a mega church, do. do you even know how many people are baptized? Do you, can yeah. you even oversee who's no, not No, so baptized? you're right. There is there becomes communion? a huge logistical problem where if you're actually going to uphold... Not baptized. Yeah. yeah. If you're actually going to uphold the biblical standards of administering uh, the Eucharist, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, there's some things that you need to ensure. Well, if you can't ensure that, then of course you're going to do it twice a year and then be like... It's, it's, uh, but communion is a part of our oath. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. If we've made covenant with a church. Correct. Correct. Yes. Okay. And that's the, again, if if that's not part of the church's theology, then that's not going to be a big part of it. Because there's a lot of churches, a lot, a lot of uh, larger churches, there's no sense of you become a, a member and you sort of swear loyalty and fealty right. to, to the congregation or to the elders. Okay. They don't, you just sign a, I want to be a member. And they go, oh, thanks. Right. Write your checks, right? <laughs> Basically. Um, so that is, you, you are correct, Rachel, in the sense that, um, yes, by and large, there are a lot of churches who have lost that understanding of, was somebody singing? Oh, yeah, daughter. It's your daughter. daughter. <laughs> wow. I thought she was out, somebody was singing in the mic outside. I'm just trying to understand, like, the, the oath in context of us as members of a church, and maybe not just in marriage. Right. Marriage is very visible. Well, we, we so, another example, um, we all know who I'm going to talk about, but I won't use the name. Uh, the individuals uh, who are partially no longer coming to our church. Um, the One of the reasons why one individual is being handled very differently than the other is because of a breaking of covenant with the congregation and the church. So one individual has maintained or tried to maintain some type of adherence to the promises they made before the congregation to when they became members, when they became mem- when they swore that oath and became members, uh, they're doing their best to uphold that, and the other one has completely rejected it. And we will see in the later months the consequences of that. One of them will be essentially restored to 
the congregation and will we'll have to give a public confession and things like that, which is a form of church discipline. Um, but they will be restored and the covenant will be kept, will be restored. The other will be, in a sense, well, well not in a sense, will be excommunicated, which is being formally, legally cut off from the covenant for their breaching of the covenant. So yes, there are, it's not just the covenant of marriage. There are lots of covenants that we can enter into as Christians. And I would say rightfully so, because we ought to understand the nature of covenant. Yeah, so that's... Um, that's one of the things that really uh, was interesting when I started preparing for this class is I'd never come across that notion of self-maledictory promises. And it's like, yeah, that is true. When you, If death is the proper break of the covenant of marriage and you commit adultery, then you're incurring upon yourself that death. Now, that doesn't mean you drop over dead, but what that means now is if we take a strictly biblical definition of of marriage and the marriage covenant. The one who commits adultery can only be restored to marriage if they're restored to that spouse. They aren't just like, well, the marriage covenant was broken and I can just go marry someone else. That's what Americans do. Uh, that's what we do in, uh, in the modern day. But in the biblical context, the person who breaches the covenant is not free then again to just go marry. So, good. Well, I'm just going to say, so the example of when two, men, two people in the, in the Old Testament would form a covenant with each other, they would slaughter a, 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 a ox, animal, lay yeah. it open, walk between it, and then the oath they swore was if either one of them broke the covenant, they were to experience what yeah. they just happened. Yeah. We cut yeah. half. It was Genesis 15 or something. So it was, it was not something that was lightly no. entered into. Yeah. And it had serious ramifications. Well, and there's the split with divorce, right? There's your split, and there's your split with excommunication as well. Yep. So, very good. So, what we see then is in Scripture is that oaths, obviously, are taken very seriously. And they are given to us uh, as um, emblems, as signs of, our, of the archetypal covenant, the archetypal covenant. Oath, and that is the, the the covenant and the oaths within the Trinity. Now, there was no time in which the, the individual members of the Trinity swore an oath or or decided to make a covenant. They are eternal. They have always dwelt in perfect union and covenant. But all of the earthly covenants that we experience, all of the covenants that are laid out in Scripture, are a result. They're a downflow result of the covenants within the covenant within the Trinity. So this is where Trinitarian uh, theology and Trinitarian covenant is crucial to understanding how the biblical covenants and our earthly covenants are designed and why they are in that place. What's the purpose of them? Ultimately, it's for us to be obedient to God and to glorify God, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we can glorify Him. Just as the Father glorifies the Son, the Spirit glorifies the Father, and um, the Son glorifies the Spirit. So that um, notion of there being the archetypal covenant then informing the rest is what we call theomorphism. This is a term that I like to use. Theomorphism is the idea that we take our understanding of things from God rather than taking our understanding of things and then applying it to God. 
So that's a really important distinction. God is teaching us. We are not learning and then applying things to him. So the marriage covenant is a picture. It's a type and shadow of the covenant that we are going to be brought back into with God. The covenant of circumcision was a type and shadow of the type of covenant we're going to be brought back into when we experience eternity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The new covenant that we're in now, baptism, death and resurrection, those types of things are then even still types and shadows of the future resurrection when we are resurrected completely and holy and experience God in his fullness. So all those things, all of the uh, covenants and the relationships and oaths that we swear on this earth should be and are designed by God to then teach us and lead us back to himself. So that's what we would say. Um, what are these covenants for? What is the purpose of biblical covenant? It's to bring us into right relationship with God, to restore us to the pre-fall state where we can walk and talk with God and, uh, and live with Him forever. So I think with that, we'll end class. And